Welcome to Breaking Bread. Keep you informed. I'm Terry Page. He changed the course of music. He was ahead of his time and still influences the way music is done today. We are talking about one of the most significant and influential composers of the Western art tradition, Ludwig van Beethoven. We're here with Jonathan Hall, choral director at Catawba Ridge High School, but you're much more than that. Tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, before to This is our first year at Catawba Ridge. Before that, I spent 10 years in Rock Hill, South Carolina at Rock Hill High School. I am um, also am a church musician, been a lifelong church musician, direct music at a church, and um, you know, conduct professionally and get to get to, to experience a lot of music um, every every week. Sounds like music is your passion. Absolutely, yes. I'm fortunate that uh, my wife and I both share that, so we spend a lot of time uh, music making. Yes, our household was like that. Uh, my dad was a, a keyboardist, singer. Um, I play the trumpet, saxophone, and we were just a, a music household. Well, let's discuss the importance of Beethoven as a transitional figure from the classical to romantic period. What kind of restraints are we talking uh, during the classical period, and how did Beethoven help shape music as we moved into the romantic era? Right. So understanding the classical period, you know, is, is really important. And as it was a response in many ways from the Baroque, which was Baroque was very busy style of music and the classical period um, had restraint. It was all about restraint and not um, having so many notes making it um, almost a m- much more minimal in a sense and not as busy. And so because of that, we, we see those, those great composers like Mozart and Haydn, who are sort of our big stars of that period, um, ha- have great success. Their music is, is well known and certainly played and performed all over the world. But that period lasted roughly 50 years. People don't like restraint. They like... Um, things that are exciting and new and big and looking <laughs> to the next big thing. And so um, when when Beethoven came around, uh, he was experiencing this classical music tradition. Um, he was sort of in the throes of that. And, and he then is the primary figure who pushed music into that new direction. He's not a composer that we can say, hey, he was classical period, hey, he was romantic. We call him a transitional composer because of that. He pushed the boundaries of classical music. He did things that people never did before and um, led into what was gonna be uh, the romantic period and and the the new soundscape and the um, new excitement that we had with that. Um, The classical period, was important because it became the first time that the orchestra was really developed into a a major genre. They were put on the stage. They were not just accompanying instruments. They were not just background music. They became the feature of performances. And so with that, Beethoven um, took all that excitement and he, uh, he harnessed it um, throughout his life, and, and his nine symphonies certainly are, are a great result of his love for instrumental music. Now, to be fair, now, when this started to take place, it wasn't if people just kind of sat back and took it lightly. There was some reaction to the change, was it not? Well, people don't like change. That, <laughs> that's one thing that, that never changes. It doesn't matter what it is. But, you know, it wasn't the style of the time. It was not the, um, the, the way things were done 
at that point. You know, classical period music was was this, and so he was um, sort of a you know a rebel of his time, doing something new that had not been done. And so for for some who were very traditional in that that classical tradition, um, they're saying, well, harmonies are not supposed to do this. We've not heard this before. Um, we we've not had this many instruments before we've not we've not played music this difficult before and so of course anytime there's change we, we have that and he he met a lot of that uh, resistance in his life some of it um, just because it's changed others uh, some will say because of his personality true yeah he was a stickler when they would get in for rehearsals he wanted to make sure that it was done right and he wanted done over and over again and he was temperamental and sometimes people couldn't always Jive with this uh, <laughs> with this temper, if you would. Mm-hmm. Well, taking a look at the the nine symphonies, um, I know, or some of the nine, we'll do that today. I guess three of them were more popular. Like three, five, nine were the more popular ones. Um, personally, mine were like more one, five, and nine. One, you can see more of an influence from Hayden, Mozart. But as you get into it, you can see more of, as you mentioned, Beethoven got his own style. Uh, Beethoven's first groundbreaking symphony was the third symphony, which is the Eroica, which means heroic. This does follow the traditional structure of the classical symphony as you just mentioned a little while ago. Now it's longer, it's more intricate than uh, any symphony that came before it, but how was it received by audience when that particular piece came about? Hmm. Well, you know, Beethoven, I think we have to understand you know, Beethoven's life and, and sort of how, how that, that plays an, ad, an aspect of the music that he composed. And whenever we, we think of those um, heroic works, as we call them, it's sort of the, that period of his life where he started um, to lose his hearing. He had that hearing impairment. And we, we saw a shift in his music. Reaching back to that first symphony, um, very, very much classical, you know, in nature. And um, that was largely because of, of the community that he was with, with the with the classical music. That was his first, his first thing. You don't push the boundaries too much on your first one. But by the time we get to the third and certainly by the fifth and, um, you know, at that point he is established and um, – He's starting to make a name for himself, and he's becoming a professional composer of his own right. Um, he's not always someone who is just employed um, by a church or employed by a nobleman. He has some backers that, that are giving him money, but he lets them know up front that you know he's not going to um, be bought by anyone. If they want to support him, thank you, um, but they're, they're not going to influence his music. And so with that, he has... Um, the autonomy to compose and not really have to answer to too many people, which is different than composers, many composers in the past. And so I think because of that, he had the liberty to now take these, take these um, differences and, and this more romantic idea, uh, more emotional music, um, and, and not have to worry about answering to the person for which he was composing. So he did that. Then society reacted how, how they react. Did they love it? Did they hate it? Um, it was up to the person. But he was able um, 
to to make an effort to to do that without having the repercussions that many composers would have to do if they were a church musician or um, employed by for a court or something like that. Right. Well, he was truly his own person, and if I remember correctly, he actually was the first person to actually get paid just for the writing of his music. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, he did his own thing, and if you didn't like it, too bad. But to your point, they loved him. He was very well-received. Mm-hmm. People, just like I guess today you would have maybe a, a poster of your favorite rock star or something mm-hmm. like that, they would have a statue <laughs> of Beethoven. And I was wondering, too, you, you mentioned that uh, that first piece. You know, that was more of an influence of, like, uh, Hayden Mozart and— when he had to go um, back to Vaughn to take care of his mother, his, mm-hmm. his, his sick, dying mother, and by the time he returned, Mozart had passed away. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder, wow, I wonder what would have happened if they would have continued to work together, how that would have shaped music. You know, who knows? Who knows, right? Sure, and they, they were not really that far apart in age, um, although they were definitely far apart in musical style. I think there's maybe 14 years um, between the two. Um, of course, Mozart died at a fairly early age, um, and and Haydn ended up sort of taking Beethoven under his wing, and that, that was whenever he really took off. But to, to what you were saying about his mother, I think we, we see a definite impact on his music when his mother passed away, and I think it speaks to his character that he then went and really became the head of his household. And made sure that his siblings were taken care of. He had a father who had, was an alcoholic by all accounts. Um, and so we see at that particular time in Beethoven's life, uh, he's not composing. You know, he, he's taking care um, of his family. He's doing the, the hard things. And he um, actually ends up taking up, I believe, the viola and playing. And so he becomes, he gets a stable income. Um, as a performer. Of course, we, we think of Beethoven as a pianist, um, but he, he takes that on and um, provides for his family. And then as he has that stable income, he's now able to find some time to start composing. But there is a lull in his life because of that. And I think his, his mother um, was often his safe haven mm-hmm. um, as his father was, was known to be um, somewhat abusive and alcoholic yeah. throughout his formative years. And so... Um, he would have Beethoven just practice for hours and hours, and sometimes he wasn't very nice about it. Right. Well, the hope was that he was going to be a child prodigy. He was going to be Mozart. You know, he was... I mean, I think he did his first concert at age seven. Yeah. You know, so they, they were pushing him. They were pushing... And his father was somewhat of a um, not successful or less than successful musician, um, his grandfather was a fairly successful musician. So he had this lineage, and I think the father was really, really pushing him. They wanted the, the next musical prodigy, the next genius. And I think that they got it, just not in the time frame that they, that they wanted. Absolutely. Well, again, he would do things in his own way. Mm-hmm. And, you, yeah, you mentioned there was a lull. Yeah, Mozart actually wrote more pieces mm-hmm. than, than Beethoven did. And I think it's because of what you just said. He's taking care of his family. He was looking at other other options there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, uh, which is one of my personal favorites and the composer's most famous, mm-hmm. uh, what's amazing to me and, and shocking to people who heard this for the first time is how it starts. There's no warning. There's no introduction. I mean, he just comes out with it. Short, 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 long. 
and that motif appears throughout the movement, which is sometimes, well, I know it was unheard of. I wouldn't say sometimes, it was just unheard of at the time. Uh, do you find that maybe in part that was one of the the reasons behind the success? I, I think so. I, I, the idea that um, it was dramatic um, is, is a very, very romantic period idea. Um, have, having the, the large contrast and dynamics, loud, soft, like you mentioned, short, long, big instruments, um, that, that just declamatory statement that um, is something that we hear probably on TV every day, whether it's in a commercial or in a movie or something, um, and, and is, is one of his more recognizable things to the common person who doesn't spend time studying um, classical and romantic period music. Well, that's true. And, and looking at that and looking at the four, throughout the uh, symphony's four movements, that opening motif does appear again and again, as you mentioned. Uh, in fact, the motif uh, undergoes a musical transformation where it comes out, you have the minor key open the movement to the more sunny or brighter key of the C major. And it's here where you get your, your trumpet fanfares. And again, I'm going to be a little biased with the trumpets, but, sure. <laughs> but hey... <laughs> But, uh, but by tying each movement together with the same motif, Beethoven was the first person to create a, an overreaching narrative of the symphony, if you would. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, now, what did the other composers gain uh, from this? What impact did they get from five and, and going forward? Well, you, you mentioned about the change in tonality or the change from the sort of minor to the major. And prior to the Romantic period, we had pretty logical or at the time or standard ways of changing keys you know we, we called those relative keys so you would you would go have a certain major key it would go to the relative minor perhaps go back especially in multi-movement works it was a great way to have contrast um, we you see that still today in music uh, but what he would do is he would be in a key and then go to one that's completely different that's unrelated now that's something that we'd not heard before and so his use of doing that really informed the music that was coming later, where instead of going from A minor to C major, maybe he went from A minor to E major to a completely different key. Your ear wasn't expecting that. So it becomes a little more dramatic. It calls your attention. And that has a, a large influence on music today because we, we are not constrained. Our ears today, um, although we like to hear those relative relationships, and it does often happen, um, we're, we're not confined to that. Composers today are not. And it's largely due to the fact that he and the folks who followed him went out on a limb and said, we're not going to be, um, we're not Bach. We don't have to follow his rules. Um, although they're great. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's true. And I'm looking at that and I'm listening to it. And obviously it, 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 it sounds fascinating. That's why we're still talking mm-hmm. about it 200 years later. We are breaking bread with Catawba Ridge High School Choral Director Jonathan Hall. You mentioned something a little while ago, uh, the dramatic expansion of uh, what was going on in that period. And I do want to point out, we had some difference in the in the instruments. You know, with the, the piano, you got cast iron frames that were enabling a thicker strings and deeper brilliant tones. You got more instruments that came along, such as the, the, the saxophone, brass, that sort of thing. And that also didn't help enrich the music at that point, correct? Absolutely. So um, we, we start to see the the change in the orchestra, like I mentioned, as it went on stage and, and we, we get the clarinet and 
And, and then all of a sudden the romantic period comes and we get excited and just the orchestra explodes. I mean, we, we, we get a lot of these modern instruments. You, you don't just have the bassoon, you're going to get the contra bassoon. You know, you're going to get your tuba. You're going to get um, a lot of the modern instruments that we know today. Some instruments are just sort of uh, refashioned a little bit or, or changed or modernized. Sure. But we want um, lots of drama, which comes from... Um, extremes in our lows and our highs. We have the piccolo now that, that we're going to get um, as an extreme high. Um, and and um, many, many in between. We see in percussion. Percussion has now become more than just the timpani. You know, it's uh, it, it, even into the 20th century, it comes into pretty much anything you can bang on is a percussion <laughs> instrument. And so uh, with that, you have um, more forces that you need. So if you're performing a romantic period work, um, it's much different than a Baroque period. For example, we, we did Messiah last or November before last. I was able to get a uh, timpani, a couple trumpets, uh, bassoon, and string players, you know, oboe, nice little small ensemble, um, which makes it economical. Um, you do something classical period, you have to hire a couple extra, okay? Um, but with that, when you add in those extras, you also have to add extra string players. Right. And you have to, you know, and then whenever you get a lot of percussion, whenever we get to the uh, romantic period, now we have to have a whole lot more, you know, because it's going to take a lot um, a lot, lot more to get those clarinets heard over the loud percussion and over the, the all this brass that, that we kind of associate with um, – that romantic period music. And so it becomes exciting, but it's also expensive, um, which is another thing to think about as a big consideration. As we look at uh, modern performances of music, it's much easier for smaller groups to do that Baroque than it is to do um, the romantic period, just because simply of the cost of the people that you have to hire, unless you have a symphony orchestra, you know, under uh, that. Um, you talk a lot of you money. Employ. Right. Yeah. When I think of the Baroque period, and this may sound crazy, but I always think of like colors and paintbrushes. Like you have the yellow, and that's kind of like your your periods of notes. Then you got your uh, blues, okay. and you just kind of put them on top of each other, and you just kind of uh, expand with the notes chasing one another. Absolutely, yeah. We we think about all all of those moving lines, um, and the the Baroque period, which is one of my favorite, um, is it, just so busy um, often. And it, it was a time when we were able to, or Bach, uh, really sort of set, set the rules for music composition. Sort of, we look back and say what he did worked really well. And that's what um, music students study, is, or, or essentially that um, his rules of composition and how he wrote. And, and you're right, you, you got those, um, the, the music was, was really forefront, and, and you were listening to how the notes of, of this part played with the notes of that part. In the Romantic period, we, we still get to have that, but now we're really working with tone color. How can we combine these instruments? And then these instruments, so gonna, this is going to give us a richer tone. This is going to give us a lighter tone. This is going to sound more pastoral. This is going to sound more heroic. Um, and so we, we, we continue playing on that idea just in sort of a different way. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think tone color is probably a great, great way to um, summarize the, the, what, what the orchestra is experiencing during this time. And, and the good composers 
are, are playing with that. I still play with it today um, and try to figure out how to get different emotions and feelings based on the, the instruments that they have playing at that moment. I was thinking you and Bach have that in common because he was the, uh, I forgot the term they'd use it for that time, but the person who's in charge of the music at the church. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So the Kapellmeister, the, the the person who was essentially, he was a, a really well, uh, or, or very good um, keyboardist, organist. And, um, and he, of course, also played. Uh, you know, led, led the choir. And we still see that some in churches today where, where you have a music director slash organist position that sort of does it all. Um, and, and, Bob and that was, was kind of his role, right? Yeah, oh, that was absolutely yeah. his role. And that's why most of the output of his music was sacred. He was writing for the church services that where, you know, every Sunday you have something new that's coming up. And so um, Bach was, you know, Largely composed Protestant works. Um, certainly, his um, Mass is is probably one one of the best known and most renowned masses. Um, but most of it is Protestant and is still played um, all over, all over the world today. Excellent. In 1824, Beethoven would write his final symphony, the Ninth Symphony, known as Choral Symphony. You can tell from the title. We are in for another game changer. Could you walk us through how this surprises listeners and why this was such a bold move during this time? Sure. Well, at this point, I mean, this was you know one of his his last um, the, the the last things that that we're gonna um, consider as some, some significant music of his, and um, his hearing, you know, was pretty much if not all gone. Pretty you know. But, very, very much out there. They, they say that during the fifth, he would put his head down on the piano while he was playing so he could try to still hear some of it. Wow. And so I think because of that, um, his his life, you know, his life experiences always influenced his music. And so um, we can hear that. And But we also see the interesting thing of now he's starting to go back and combine that choir in there so with, with that, that choral movement. Uh, which is um, probably, if not his, one of his most recognizable tunes um, that, that we hear. And probably um, 70% of my students can come in and, and play, you know, the, the melody. <laughs> da, 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 da. You know, yeah. we've, all, we've all heard that. And so there's certainly still today hymn accompaniment or hymns um, that, that are set to the, the, that tune. So, um, it, it made it unique because it was uh, such grandeur. It made it unique because there were those choral for forces in there as well as just the instrumental. And we didn't see um, the word symphony and choral sort of together. We would have certainly works that had orchestra and chorus. We would have, we've had oratorio. We've had um, our church musics, our masses. Um, he had a Misa Solemnus. Um, which is uh, regarded as an important choral work as well. Um, his Christ on the Mount of Olives, another important choral orchestral work, but we, we, they were not called symphonies. And so this is one way that we start to think, okay, maybe we're gonna push the bounds of what is a symphony. Does it have to be what it was that we said it was all along? Does it have to follow this form? What can it be? And we see in the Romantic period, 
that a lot of um, a lot of those genres sort of maybe a little bit loose and exactly um, what the definition of the of those things are exactly and um, but still have some components that hold true to the original. Yeah, you mentioned lost his hearing. He started using lose his hearing around his twenties, mm -hmm. and you know he was a pianist at that point, and then he had to go in a, another direction totally with his music. But as you can tell, he was very successful. Now it, it did frustrate him. I don't, I don't want to mislead anybody. It, 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 it drove him crazy. Mm -hmm. But we got some amazing works out of it. I think a misconception is um, that he was he had a hearing impairment or was deaf his entire life, which which isn't the case. Like you said, I think in, in his late twenties, whenever he was really sort of either realized or came to terms with the fact that there was something seriously you know wrong with his hearing, um, that he. He did have a pretty good life before that of some excellent music making. And being a pianist and, and a performer publicly from the age of seven, um, if you're playing by yourself, fine. If you're starting to play with other people, you really have to be able to listen. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, that it came to a point to where he's, he couldn't, he could no longer do that. And so, um, I think composition really, in many ways, had to become his love if he wanted to continue with music and um, was a way for him to maintain those same high standards that he'd set for himself, um, but just not necessarily as an active performer, which could be perhaps why he was so hard on the performers of his music. We, we hear about him writing piano works that people would refuse to play because it would just be too difficult or it would take too much time or, you know, and he's probably going, hey, I'm deaf. Deal with it, <laughs> right. right? Who knows? But he did spend a period of time sort of um, outside of Vienna where he was just kind of took a mental break and, and was able to get out of the city and, and take in the fact that he was losing his hearing and, and recheck with himself and say, you know, how am I going to go forward? And that was, um, he tried a lot of different remedies. He uh, went and they went to the doctor. They put little, I think they put little like trumpet-like things in his ear to see yeah. if they could hear. They, you know, that didn't do mineral baths. <laughs> they did, you know, everything, they, everything that they could at the time. Um, they tried. They did. They but tried. there was really not a whole lot they can, whole lot they can do. Yeah. Well, Jonathan Hall, thank you for coming and joining us today. Breaking bread. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Our music was composed by Ludwig van Beethoven. Follow us on Twitter at BreakingBread101. That's break, the letter N as in November, Bread101. Or catch us on Instagram, BreakingBread101. Visit our website, BreakingBread.biz. Breaking Bread is a production of Artists for the People, created by Terry Page, produced by Terry Page and Sam Williams. Success is when opportunity meets preparation. Until next time. Until next time.